Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if our lives could simply be a reflection of all that you have given to us, that we would breathe in the life that you give to us, your Holy Spirit, to live there and to breathe out praise in everything that we say and everything that we do, that would be our desire, is to worship you with everything that we are. We pray that as we gather around the scriptures and uh, as we learn that your Holy Spirit would continue to teach us and that you would continue to mold us to be more and more like your son Jesus, to be more and more like the people you have created us to be, such that all that you pour into our lives is what is reflected out into the world through us. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but our world is often a very divisive place. Probably that doesn't shock you, but if that does shock you, just spend 10 seconds on the internet. Google any issue, uh, any philosophical thought, uh, and pretty much anything that's out there, and you will find an argument. There is a zillion things for us to argue about. Like what? Well, in a couple of weeks here in Canada, we have a federal election. So how do you think our government is doing? Who are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote at all? How is the current government done with our economy? Or with COVID restrictions? Oh, you want something to argue about? Let's talk about COVID restrictions. Too much? Too, too, not enough? Should we have mandated vaccines? Vaccine passports? Where should you have to show a passport, if ever? And of course, debates like this are nothing new. And although we have them in society, and we talk about politics, we talk about healthcare, we talk about the economy, of course, you say, well, of course, these are big issues. People are going to argue about this. But then what is one of the other major things that people argue about? Well, of course, it's religion. And it's not just people outside of religion that argue about big and important things and get heated and get into big uh, debates and even get upset with each other. But we have to acknowledge, for those of us who are Christians, that certainly within Christianity, even amongst one another, we are often very divisive. In fact, we argue about just about everything sometimes, even in religion and in Christianity. So we argue about politics. Should we be more liberal or more conservative? We argue about morality, sexuality, alcohol, divorce, remarriage, how the world will end, how the world began, marijuana use, homeschool, public school, private school. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And some of these issues are hot-button ones today. They're ones that get people uh, really jazzed up. We get really emotional about it. Sometimes we get so passionate about it, we want to fight about it. Uh, but the issues that we fight about now are not the issues that we'll be fighting about in 20 or 30 years. We know that because the issues we're really fighting about now are not the issues that our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were fighting about. But they had their issues. And those issues, if we're honest, didn't just resolve themselves, but they became a little bit less emotionally charged. But the reality is that we all get into these debates and these arguments and not always in the most polite or loving way. And sometimes it gets very, very divisive. And I believe that at this time in our culture, in our world, the church, that is the, the groupings, the coming together of people who follow Jesus all over the world, we have a great, great opportunity because we live in a world that is so often divided. If, 
There is the possibility that a group of us could actually come together in a divided world in a united way, even in the midst of all the things that could tear us apart, all the things we could argue about, all the things that we could separate over, all the things that we could get mad about, all the things that make us different. If there was a way for us to actually come together united as a people in the best possible way, we would stand out. In our world today, in the best possible way, if there was a group of people who could come and find some way to transcend all of the things that make us different and all of the things that we argue about and all of the things that we fight about and all of the reasons we have to push each other away, if we could find a way to actually come together and live in a united fashion, we would stand out. The church would stand out. And so I think we have a great opportunity I think Westside, for those of us who are part of the Westside community, whether you're watching at home, wherever you are, for those of us who are in the room, for those of us who will be in the room in the coming weeks or will be in a geographic proximity, we really have a great opportunity. We've been talking a lot this summer about community because one of the things that has been so challenging for us in the last 18 months, I think all across the world has been Community and building meaningful community when we can't always be together, when we haven't always been able to be physically in the same room, when that's been a challenge, when we've had smaller grouping numbers and all that kind of stuff, that's been one of our challenges. And I think we need to really think through what our community looks like. That's why we're talking so much about it. And one of the great opportunities, as I've said today, is whether or not we will be able to come together as a united group of people in the midst of a very divided world. So we've been working through the book of Ephesians, which is a letter in the New Testament. Today, we come to the second half of chapter two of Ephesians, and we will uh, meet a a section where uh, the writer is addressing the fact that there's two groups of people who have come together that have every reason to be divided, that in their context and in their world, they had every reason to fight. They had different backgrounds. They had different ancestry. They had different uh, religions. They had different philosophies. They were of different uh, ethnicities, national backgrounds, all the re- and every reason why they would fight. And so he addresses why they should be unified. And there's a lot for us to learn. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading in verse 11. If you have a Bible, I would love for you uh, to read along again, whether you're at home uh, or here in the room with us today. This is what it says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our writer here is a Jewish Christian. So he's got a Jewish background, and Jesus obviously was Jewish uh, and comes out of the Jewish tradition. And uh, a lot of the first followers were Jewish people who were following Jesus. They didn't stop being Jewish. Uh, but quickly, soon after, there was a lot of people who weren't Jewish that started following Jesus. And again, that's where we have a bit of the, the break in differences in people. And just so that you get a little bit of context on how big a deal this is, the mutual animosity, so that means both ways, between Jewish people and not Jewish people. By one commentator, he's said to be one of the uglier elements of the Greco-Roman world. It was a major categorization of people. 
people who are Jewish and not Jewish in that time and in that place of the in part of the world. And there were pretty hard and fast boundaries that were in place at that time in the religious worshiping community. So in fact, in the 1800s, 1871, there were some archaeologists that found one of the pillars from the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, which was where the Jewish people went and they worshiped. It was where um, the, the concentrated presence of God was. It was so sacred. It was so important. It was a, a massive part of their, their history and of their identity as the people of God. It was a big deal. And in 1871, uh, archaeologists uh, uncovered a pillar that was from one of the walls. And one of the walls that actually kept um, non-Jewish people from getting closer in towards the sanctuary, the most holy place of the temple. And that was part of how the temple were built. There were different sections. And if you were Jewish, you could go further inside than people who weren't Jewish. They were kept to a certain distance. And on this pillar, this is what it said. This is what the engraving said. No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will have only himself to thank for the death which follows. If you are not Jewish, this is where your boundary is. You can't come any further or else what's going to happen to you? Well, it's your fault, but you're going to die. I mean, that is a really, really big deal. There's some serious animosity. We are different. And some of us have certain privileges that other people don't have. Now, not only that, in the temple, the structure of their religion, that was part of it, but also in their, their law. And we read the Jewish law and the Jewish uh, scriptures, the uh, Christian Old Testament. And there was one uh, ancient, again, ancient uh, Jewish writer who talks about the law of God. And again, these aren't just kind of arbitrary, oh, we, we wrote down a bunch of rules about how we're supposed to live. But this is, they believed what God had given them at their law. And this is what one ancient writer says. Our lawgiver, God, fenced us about, now I just want you to pick up on that language because we've seen that twice now, right? When we're talking about the temple, it was no man of another race is to enter within the fence or the wall of this enclosure. And now when we're talking about the law, it says our lawgiver fenced us about, so put a fence around us with impenetrable palisades and with walls of iron to the end that we should mingle in no way with any of the other nations, remaining pure in body and in spirit, and so that we should be polluted by none, nor be infected with perversions by associating with worthless persons. He has fenced us about on all sides with prescribed purifications in matters of food and drink and touch and hearing and sight, in matters, in other words, of all of our senses. We have been separated. And what this writer is saying is if you interpret the laws of the Jewish scriptures, one of the things it does is keeps us away from other people. It fences us in. It makes us distinct from you, us versus them. We are God's people. This is who we are. These are our laws and you stay out. This is our temple. This is the wall. You can come this far, but you can't go any further. This is who we are. So here in Ephesians, we have a Jewish writer speaking primarily to Gentile Christians in the church of Ephesus. So he's Jewish, writing from his Jewish background, writing to a bunch of people that don't have the background. And so he says things like, you've been called the uncircumcision. And then he puts in here something that it sounds a little pejorative towards not just the Gentiles, but also the Jewish people, because he says, uh, by those who are the circumcision. So circumcision was uh, one of the things that Jewish uh, boys would have done to them on the eighth day after they were born as a sign that they were part of the people of Israel. 
and uh, very important for them as uh, part of their faith community and part of their identity. But he says, which is made by the flesh of hands. So it's a little bit pejorative there, which shows us that what he's not saying is, oh, and you Gentiles, you're just bad, terrible people. The Jews have always been good. He's going to address that in a second. He's actually putting everybody on equal footing. So he starts by, you know, you who, you know, have been put down by the uh, the Jews, some Jews, uh, as the uncircumcision. Well, they're the circumcision, but that's just something that they've done by their hands. But remember that there was a time where you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promises. And then you don't have hope uh, of the presence of God in the world. And so uh, he, what he's saying here is to these Gentiles is, there are certain privileges that the people of Israel have had that you do not share. There is a trajectory for the people of Israel leading up to the Messiah. And the Christ or the Messiah is going to be focal point of what brings people together in this passage. And he says, now the Jewish people have had certain advantages. We talk about the covenants, like what? The promises to people like Abram, whose labor called Abraham. That God would bless him and that he would bless the entire world. That he would give him a child and that would become a nation. And that this nation would bless the entire world. Promises to people like David, King David. That he would reign and his lineage would reign forever. From whom the Messiah comes. Or uh, covenant to uh, the prophets. Which is the new covenant which foresees uh, the, the, the Messiah coming. And giving people the spirit of God to live inside of them. These are promises. These are covenants that were given to the people of Israel. And he starts by saying, you didn't have any of those and you were far off. And so you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Remember where you started. And then we have in verse 13 something very similar to what we saw if you're watching last week. Last week we had, this is where you started, you were dead. Spiritually you were dead. And then there was this verse and there was this pivotal phrase said, but God. And then it talks about the redemptive purposes of God. We have a similar phrase here in verse 13. But now in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, and this language of being far off and being near, again, would have been theological language that would have oftentimes, especially in Jewish circles, uh, talk about the Jewish people who were close, who were near, and the Gentiles who were far off. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's amazing. In verse 14, he continues, and now we'll find out that he's not just being uh, putting down the Gentiles in their history and you guys have nothing because we'll see how he talks about how the law has operated and that would have been in operation towards the Jewish people. He says in verse 14, for he himself, now he's talking about Christ, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So did you catch right there in that, that uh, first verse that we read, verse 14? For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Well, what wall? The hostility. What, what is all of this that divides us, that keeps us separate? Why are we always fighting? Why do we feel so different from each other? 
Why do we look at you and say, well, I'm the good one, you're the bad one, we're the ones with good history, you're the ones with bad history, we think the right things, you think the wrong things, we have the right morality, you have the wrong morality, why are we always fighting, what's the hostility? Well, uh, scholars think that the wall probably is a reference to maybe specifically two things, and they're the two things we just talked about. One is, think about the temple, and literally there was a wall. A lot of people would have thought, well, these people in that context, this would have been written Ephesians sometime after that temple was actually destroyed, most likely. And they might think back to a time when, oh, there was this huge temple in Jerusalem. It was world famous, but I couldn't go very far. At least I couldn't go as far as other Jewish people could, if I wasn't Jewish, into that worshiping community, into that holy place. I was kept out. So maybe there's a little bit of allusion to what keeps us, you know, that whole religious structure, literally a structure, a wall has been broken down. And other scholars think it's the law. Because as we read, there's a lot of people who interpreted the law. And one of the things the law did was say to the Jewish people, you don't eat these kind of things and you don't touch these kind of things and you don't do these kind of things. And over and over and over, you will read because you're not like everybody else. And so one of the interpretations of the law is we're not like everybody else. And the lawgiver, the creator has told us that. Now in Ephesians, we read that in Christ Jesus, that wall of hostility has been broken down. That which separated us, whether we're talking about the religious system in the temple or whether we're talking about the law or whether we're talking about both or whether we're talking about just the entire way of thinking, me versus you, Jewish versus non-Jewish, the whole rest of it, that has now been broken down. It's been obliterated. It's no longer operating. That's not how you're supposed to operate. We think about the, the law, you have to ask then, well, but isn't it the law that comes from God? Aren't they right? That is what is there. And how could the writer in verse 15 say, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? By abolishing it, really? Have you read Jesus? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. He used this very same word speaking about the law, except he said, I have not come to abolish the law. But you say in Ephesians, but he, he's saying here, you did abolish the law. Christ Jesus abolished the law to break down the hostility that the law was created. Well, what does that mean? Well, here, if you take the law and you interpret it one way, here's what you get. You get what I talked about before. It's us versus them. Here's a bunch of rules. And we're the ones that follow it and we're in and you're the ones that don't follow it. So you're out. But really what happens if you follow that way of thinking, a list of laws, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, is eventually everybody's wrong. Eventually, it becomes a slave to legalism. None of us, we're all trying to follow this law, but none of us can always do it. And so eventually, what you end up having is condemnation. Ah, you're guilty. Oh, you're guilty. Oh, you're guilty. Oh, wait, I'm guilty. Oh, you realize the law has limits. The law only goes so far. We read this in other parts of the New Testament as well. Paul will talk about this in numerous places. And Galatians is a book that talks all about how the law really just enslaves us because that's what ends up happening. We all get condemned under the law. We all realize that we're not good enough under the law. So what did Jesus do when he said, I have not come to abolish the law? Well, he was saying, we don't just throw it out. We don't just say, well, here's what God has said is, is right and wrong and here's how we should live. But we have to go further. The law will never go far enough. So where do we go from there? Well, love picks up where law leaves off. Law tells us, here's how you should live. Here's the rules. But love goes further. 
And this is what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, the next couple of chapters that we read after he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, which means it was unfulfilled, which means it didn't go far enough, which means we had to go further to the heart of God to find out what God's true motivations are, what God's real heart is. And at the heart of God, it's this love, love for other people, even to the point where you're loving your enemy. Love picks up where law leaves off. Law is never good enough. Some of us have learned this in our lives. Because we spent a good chunk of our lives building up the laws that we want to live by. This is right, this is wrong. This is black, this is white. This is what's good, this is what's bad. And then we found out that life gets messier than that. And we found out that there's people that we love very much that will never agree with us on those rules and those laws. And we found out that there's some areas where we just don't have a good enough rule or a law. And there's these gray areas that are really hard for us to figure out what's right and what's wrong and what we should do. And we have to use wisdom. And we realized that we came to the end of just having a law for everything. Well, what do we do? We need something deeper. We need to look for the wisdom of love. Love picks up where law leaves off. Law will tell us there's right and wrong and some people are in and some people are out. And that's your boundaries. But love will go further. Love will say, how do I bring you in? How do I come to you? How do we end this hostility between us? The laws cannot do this. The laws can only tell us what can divide us. But love can bring us back together and unite us. You know, this passage sort of sounds like marriage, doesn't it? When we read that, uh, that it's talking about God would create himself one new man in the place of two. He takes two and he makes one. We've heard that before in the scriptures. It comes all the way back from Genesis. Jesus talks about it. Talking about the story of Adam and Eve. Man and the woman. He says, therefore, based on you know, how they came together, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one and they will no longer be two, but they will be one flesh. That the relationship between two people coming together in marriage is so intimate, it's so close, that, that no longer are there two, but you share one life. You become one. Isn't that amazing? You know, last weekend, uh, I officiated a wedding, and I have officiated dozens of weddings, and every time somebody asks me to do a wedding, I offer them premarital counseling, because it turns out that two people becoming one flesh in one relationship is really, really hard, and so we spend some time talking about what that's going to take. What does it take to actually build a strong foundation? Because when you come that close and that you're in that intimate level with somebody else, it turns out there's oftentimes hostility. Some of us are married. We've experienced that. You fight. You want your own way. You think they're doing something they're not supposed to do. I can't believe they would think this or do that or how much they hurt me. They don't even understand. And so there's a couple of things that as we work through premarital counseling, we work towards a wedding and the start of a marriage. We spend weeks talking about a whole bunch of things. And there's two big things that I want people to know before they get married, generally speaking. One is that marriage takes work. It's challenging. It doesn't just happen. You don't just get married and the next day everything is harmonious and beautiful and wonderful. Or it might be for the next day, but wait till after the honeymoon. Wait till after the honeymoon period. Give it a year or two or three and you're going to realize that sometimes it's difficult. So we talk about things like how important communication is. We talk about conflict management. How do you work things out when you disagree, when you want something different? When you have different opinions and those are strong, how do you work together in life? We talk about listening to one another. I mean, really listening to each other. I mean, putting away your phone, turning off the TV, staring somebody in the eyes and letting them talk about not just what they've done that day, but what they feel and what their dreams are and what their struggles are. 
and how they think things are going and, and, and what their experience is and learning about their history and what's brought them to think the way that they think and feel the way that they feel and want what they want in life, but to really, really, truly listen. And then I want them to know the second thing, how absolutely amazing and powerful and wonderful marriage is. I mean, it's the most powerful of human relationships. It's the, it's the it's the best. I mean, when it's working the way it's supposed to work, it is the absolute best to think two become one and together, united in that kind of love, brought together, having somebody to live life with on that plane when it's going good. There's nothing better than that. And there's a really uh, popular little passage of scripture that people like to read at weddings. And I'm guessing that there's probably a whole bunch of you at your wedding. You chose this as one of the scriptures to be read in your wedding. It comes from 1 Corinthians 13. And the reason people like it read at a wedding is because it's about love. And so this is what it says. And it talks about real love. Like this is not just that um, feeling that maybe comes or goes, but this is what real love looks like. So it says love is patient, love is kind does not envy, it does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's a beautiful thing to read at a wedding. I mean, it's a powerful thing for two people to be married and, and to read that and to think we would aspire to live in this way. We don't always, but we would, we would aspire to this. If we could take this and, and over the years grow in the way that we treat each other, if we could do this for one another, what a relationship that would be. And so it is true if you're married. It's a great map to try and follow. But 1 Corinthians 13 was not written for two people who are getting married. 1 Corinthians 13 in its context was written for how we ought to treat other people in the church. And now this is pretty powerful, isn't it? Well, I have a hard enough time treating my wife this way, my husband this way. But this is how we ought to treat each other. This is the love of the church. This is the uniting of people who are so different, who come from every ethnic background and every nation of the world and from every philosophy and every educational level and every social economic status, wherever we're at. And we all come together, all so different with, in our world, every reason to be divided and to push each other away and to think about our differences but love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Does it sound like us? It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. A recipe for unity in the church. Yes, in marriage as well but real love, the way that we want to treat each other. It reminds me to say, and I perhaps say this uh, often, but if the way that you read the Bible leads you to judge someone rather than love someone, you're reading it wrong. And that's what they're saying in Ephesians. That's what the, this is saying. I get it. We have every reason for hostility. In fact, if you want to, you can use the Bible to be divisive on just about anything. Find your verse. Find your issue. Find your politics. Find racism. 
You can find it if you look hard. I mean, if that's what you want to use this for, you'll find a way to do it. But it's not the way Jesus read his Bible. It's not the way he interpreted the law. He said, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to say none of this is any good, but it wasn't finished. Love picks up where law left off. We have to keep going. It's not less than, here's the rules. It's more than, here's the rules. It goes to love. That's what the other New Testament writers are saying too. That's why Paul in places like Galatians and Romans will reiterate, listen, law leads to slavery because eventually it's just beating us all down and dividing us if that's how we interpret it. But if we interpret it with a lead up to the Messiah who shows us love, and how does he show us love? Well, he, he tears down the dividing wall in his flesh. How? By giving himself on the cross to die in love for the people that he loves, those who are far off, the non-Jewish people who didn't have any of these promises. They didn't have any of the stuff that Jewish people said, look at all of our privileges. He died for them. And for the Jewish people who had the law and had the promises and had the covenants and had all of the lead up and still they were missing the point. And then Jesus comes and let me, says, let me show you. Let me show you. Here's how you interpret it. Here's the here's trajectory. Here's how we keep going. Law just can't do what love does. Love has the power to unite what law divides. We have to keep going. I spoke about this um, on one of the podcasts this past year, so maybe this is familiar to some of us, but it reminds me that a lot of Christians, um, we love to talk about love. We love to talk about how we love everybody. I love everybody. Oh, people, oh, people who don't, don't live the way I think. Oh, I think they should. Well, I still love them. Oh, we disagree. I still love them. Oh, people who are in crisis in all different parts of the world. Oh, I love them. Do we love them? Do we go back to 1 Corinthians 13, love them? Or do we have this sort of vague and disconnected fondness for them? I love the people of Afghanistan. Really? What does that mean? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this to try and make us feel guilty, but we see a crisis in Afghanistan and we say, man, we love people. We love people all over the world. We love these people who are struggling. We love these people who are in a humanity, humanitarian crisis. Okay, how? How? I love people that think differently than me, that act differently than me, who I completely disagree with their lifestyle. I completely disagree with their choices. How do you love them? Or is it sort of a vague and disconnected, fond feeling? Ah, yes, I love everybody. Everybody's wonderful. That's good. Okay, do you have them in your home? Do you care for their practical needs? Have you listened to them? Listen to their story, listen to their pain, listen to not only what they think, but why they think that way. Listen to their experiences. Try to figure out who they are and, and why they are how they are. Have you engaged in their everyday life in such a way that you show up as a loving person? Have you done some of this stuff from uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that says, and I'm not going to boast, and I'm not going to be arrogant, which means I'm not going to assume that I'm the one that has all the answers and they don't. I'm not going to be rude, which again assumes that I'm right about everything and the way that I live is the way that everybody should live. Have we believed the best in people and hope for people? Have we really? It's just a question. I just think we need to be careful about seeing who we love. And it's a good challenge. I mean, I'm not there. I'm not saying I'm there. I just think we have to be careful. We love everybody. Well, okay. 
That's, that's messier. And that's harder. That requires more from us. I love this. Andy Stanley who has a huge church, one of the biggest churches in America. And he's known uh, for asking this question. Simply this, what does love require? What if we asked ourselves that? What does love require of me? In this situation, with this person, with this group of people, what does love require of me? Sometimes we ask ourselves, what does law require of me? I have to tell them how terrible they are and how awful all their decisions are and how I disagree with them. But what does love require of me? How can I care for them? How can I be there for them? How can I listen to them? What does love require? Love picks up where law leaves off. And this, this leaves no loopholes for us. There's no easy outs on this. I love everybody. But when we wade into that messiness of walking towards, in very practical ways, people who are very different from us and people with whom we may disagree, and with all the reasons we would have to divide, how could we find unity? It's scary. It's, it's very threatening. It's very threatening to think that, well, if we let our guard down, if we actually go and love people, well, they're going to think that I approve of everything that they do. Well, I'll be sacrificing truth. Well, I'll be sacrificing what I believe. Well, well, well there's so, you know, it's out of my comfort zone. I don't know if I can go. It's very scary. Well, listen to this. Back in Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, now speaking to primarily Gentiles, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember, he didn't say in Ephesians, uh, and you who are far off, I made you Jewish. In fact, there's a lot of debate about that. And the New Testament's clear. They decided we're not making people Jewish. We're not telling Jewish people they can't be Jewish either. But God's making a new person. A new person. This is what it looks like. So we've come together in this household. Verse 20. Built, because how are we going to build that? There's just so many reasons to divide when we're different. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is the key? The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. The apostles taught what Jesus taught. They, relied, they took what they had seen and experienced of Jesus. So an apostle was, somebody who had an experience of the risen Christ. They had walked with them, talked with him. Now I'm teaching you that. And then the prophets, which means they had a charismatic connection with the Holy Spirit of God. Read a lot about that in the book of Acts, for example. And they start to, this is the foundation. But then it all holds together in Christ Jesus, who's the cornerstone. There's a little bit of disagreement on the translation of this word. What kind of stone are we talking about? The cornerstone that might have been in the foundation, maybe, or probably more probable, the keystone. This is how a keystone works. Picture a stone wall being built, big stone wall, a part of a building, and there's a huge archway in the middle of it. The keystone was the stone that went right at, it was the, the last part that was kind of put in, and it went right at the top of the arch. And the keystone allowed everything else to fall into place, all the other stones, and it made sure that everything didn't collapse. Everything depended on the keystone, and every other stone remained in place by its relationship to the keystone. And if you dislodged the keystone, if you knocked it out, the whole thing would fall. It would all, it would all be rubble. <clears throat> Listen, 
Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, the keystone. He's what brings everything together. What brings us together? That we agree on politics? That we agree on social issues? These, it's not that those things aren't important. They're important. But what holds us together? What if it turns out that we're going to disagree on all kinds of that stuff? What if it turns out that we have all different backgrounds and we're from all different parts of the world and we have all different levels of education and we have all different levels of socioeconomic status and on and on and on. The keystone is Christ. What holds it together is Christ. Those who are near, those who are far off, those who are Jewish, those who weren't Jewish, those who have a Christian upbringing and those who don't, those who are conservative, those who are liberal, those who go down the list of all the things, that, all the things that could divide us, but what holds us together? Christ and Christ crucified. The one who loves us so much, he would give himself up. For the ones who didn't have the law and the prophets and the covenants and the history and the ancestries, and for the ones who did, for all of us holding together. And guess what we're being built into? Those who are followers of Christ. You're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You're the temple the temple that's gone and destroyed, where the presence of God was housed. We are the temple. We are the stones that when we're unified and when we come together, we embody the Spirit of God. So just blow your mind. Just think about that for a second. Where's a divided, hurting world going to find God? in people who, despite all of our differences, could come united in the love of the Messiah, the one who died for us, Christ Jesus, and died for all of us. Which means this, because pretty soon uh, we're going to be meeting together on Sunday mornings. Some of us are ready for it. Some of us won't be. And some of us will continue to watch online for a while and, and check things out. And, and for many different reasons, maybe it's not the time for you to be in the room. And some of us will be. And, and whatever the case and wherever we are, our job is to be part of this temple. Is to come together unified, which means this. Your participation in community matters. You're one of the stones. Whether or not you participate matters because it makes a difference, because you're one of the stones held in place by Christ Jesus to be the housing of the Spirit of God. The temple, the place where the world sees the glory of God, His love in all its glory. It matters. Your participation. Now, we might disagree on what that participation looks like. Some of us may have wished that we had gathered physically months ago. Some of us might think we still should be waiting for months longer. But all of us can participate and all of us matter. So here's what I would like to encourage you to do as, as uh, we move into the fall and as we work at building this kind of community to participate. One, uh, if you're ready and if it's a healthy, good, wise choice for you, sign up for next Sunday. Come join us. Be here. Worship together. For some of you, I know there are reasons for you not to be here. And we will continue to uh, make sure that you can watch messages and you can participate uh, in the teachings and what's happening here in our services and in other ways. Uh, but if you're ready and this is a good decision for you, we would encourage you go and sign up right now on our website. There's a place for you to do that. It makes a big difference for us that we can plan ahead. And so do not wait until the weekend. Please do it now. We want to prepare for you and for all of us to come, to come together and to worship. Number two, 
fill out a connect card to let us know you're with us, especially if you're someone who can't be with us in person in the next little while. Maybe you've been watching for a while on YouTube and you've been following with us and all that kind of stuff. We want to know that you're with us because you matter to us and we want to make sure that you're cared for and prayed for. And if there's ways that we can help you, we want to actually try and love you. And so if you're watching out there, but maybe you haven't reached out, we want to know who you are. We want to know that you're part of our community and make sure that we help you to be part of our community. So if that's you, there's an online connect card and there's a link in the uh, description of this video below or in the chat. And we would love for you just to fill that connect card out. Let us know who you are and if there are things that we can be praying for or ways that you want to get involved other than showing up in person right now. We want to make sure that you are in a meaningful relationship with this community. So go ahead and do that because we know uh, that right now uh, everybody is in a, a bit of a different situation. Number three, plan to join a team and a group. And we say this every single year. Many of you are volunteers here. So important because, again, coming together for us is not just about watching someone talk or uh, listening to a band. This isn't just about um, being a spectator. It's about being a community. And everything that we do around here helps us build a community. Whether you're uh, helping us with technology, which is so important these days, we all know that. Whether you're helping in kids ministry or music ministry or uh, greeting people on the way in and helping them find a seat uh, or whatever it is. There's so many areas that you can uh, be part of what we're doing here. Plan to join a team. And again, uh, some of us are ready to do that in person and maybe that's still down the road for you. But you can just let us know on that connect card if it's something you want to do. And the second one is, and I, clear, I want you to clear your schedule for this. I want you to mark off a night during the week. doesn't matter which night. We'll help accommodate you. But right now, as things start to ramp up and as your commitments maybe start to grow, kids are back in school and maybe some activities that haven't been going are back in, I want you to reserve some time to be in a life group this year. Because uh, this, what we do in a big group, less big these days, is really wonderful. It's really important as we worship together. But what happens in smaller groups where we study scripture together, where we pray for each other, where we talk about what's happening in our lives, where we share with each other, and where we really help carry each other's burdens. That is probably the most church you can get. Biblical, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, New Testament, early followers of Jesus. Let's read scripture together. Let's pray with and for one another. Let's get on mission together. Let's break bread together, which means communion. By the way, we're going to do that next week. We're excited together to do communion together. There's nothing more church than that. That is where you get deep community. That's where you get deep relationships. That's where this idea of two becoming one, people who have hostility, being unified, people have every reason to divide, coming together to love each other, even despite their distances. Because of Christ Jesus, our Messiah, that's where it really happens. I want you to make that a priority this year. Get in a group, and I think it'll change your life. And maybe, uh, maybe, if we're willing to really love, if we're really willing to go beyond love, beyond law to love, if we're willing to commit to God and to one another, that in a small and mysterious ways, it'll be a little bit like a mysterious uh, marriage. And perhaps we will say that what God has joined together, let no one separate in a divisive world, May it be so, so in the church. Heavenly Father, that is a lot for us. That is a heavy burden that we cannot carry. And so we give it to our Lord Jesus Christ.
the keystone, the cornerstone, who holds all together. We trust in him and we pray that this fall we would see powerful community built in, in our worship on, on Sundays, even the way that we connect online for those who are unable to be in person, in our groups and in the ways that we serve the world around us. And God, would your love shine gloriously in our lives, in the church, and in the world. Amen.